the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering Today's program. Today we'll talk with Bob Merritt. He's a pastor and author of Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. That's in the first hour of today's program. We'll continue giving away planned the movie Blu-ray uh, DVDs uh, this and next hour and uh, we're also following a developing and breaking story. At least six Philadelphia police officers have been wounded, uh, have been shot. At least one reportedly grazed in the head in an ongoing shootout in the city of uh, Nicetown in Philadelphia. Uh, this afternoon, it's unfolding. It's been almost three hours since this thing began. Three officers were rushed to Temple University Hospital, according to officials. Three other officers were taken to Einstein Hospital. At least one of them was shot in the uh, in the arm. All six officers are in stable condition and are being treated for non-life-threatening injuries. But this is an active and ongoing situation. High-ranking police officials said that two officers with the Narcotics Strike Force were serving a warrant at a multifamily home when a shooter opened fire at at the home. The two officers are barricaded in separate rooms with as many as four suspects in what may be a drug-related offense. In fact, uh, there has been a record-setting amount of cocaine coming into Philadelphia just in this last short period of time. Hostage negotiators and a SWAT team are at the scene at this very moment. Hundreds of rounds of gunfire could be heard, although the weapon being uh, used by the shooter remains unknown. One suspect is in custody. The president is, uh, was made aware of this, the situation unfolding in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, according to White House Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley. The president has been briefed on the shooting in Philadelphia and continues to monitor the situation, Gidley says. The situation was being described as an active shooting scene that began at about 4.30 p.m. local time. Officers called for backup, frantically saying shots fired, shots fired at North 15th Street. Video footage of the scene showed a massive police presence in the neighborhood. Hundreds of responding officers and police cars from the Philadelphia Police Department as well well as special agents from the Philadelphia Field Division blocked off the streets surrounding 15th and Butler, crouching behind cars, many with their guns drawn in search of a possible gunman, according to uh, reports from the local affiliate. One officer appeared injured and was taken away in a police car. Video also showed two other officers carrying a man and putting them in the back of a police car, according to reports by the Associated Press. And police are cautioning the community to stay indoors as gunshots continue to ring out in that neighborhood. Uh, the police department, Philadelphia Police Department Sergeant Eric Grip tweeted, suspect is still firing. Stay out of the area. This is a developing story and we'll try to uh, cover more details uh, as or if they are made available. 
Taking a look at some of the uh, the day's headlines, guards at the New York City jail where Jeffrey Epstein is said to have killed himself are suspected of falsifying log entries to show they were checking on the alleged sex trafficker and other inmates with greater regularity than was the case, according to a report released yesterday. Surveillance video reviewed after his death shows guards at the Metropolitan Correctional Center did not make some of the checks they claimed to have made in their logs. Uh, the federal jail workers um, claimed they were checking on inmates in Epstein's unit every half hour, but investigators now believe that was not the case. The Justice Department uh, yesterday said two guards assigned to watch Epstein had been placed on administrative leave. The latest revelation reported by CBS News comes amid growing conspiracy theories surrounding the death as uh, he awaited trial on sex trafficking and conspiracy charges. Prosecutors said he sexually abused dozens of young girls in his New York and Florida residences between 2002 and 2005, allegations that could have landed him behind bars for 45 years. Many lawmakers and conspiracy theorists alike wonder how he could commit suicide inside the special housing unit at the jail facility. Well, according to those who have actually been inside, it's not that hard, but uh, with appropriate monitoring, it does become more difficult. That was not the case here. Well, flights resumed at Hong Kong's airport this morning after two days of disruptions marked an outburst or rather marked by outbursts of violence that highlight the hardening positions of pro-democracy protesters and authorities in the semi-autonomous Chinese city. According to the Associated Press, about three dozen protesters remained camped at the airport's arrivals area the day after a mass demonstration and frenzied mob violence forced more than 100 uh, flight cancellations. Additional identification checks were in place, but check encounters were open and flights appeared to be operating normally throughout the day. China has demanded that the United States stay out of the pro-democracy protests. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding said the demonstrators resemble those who dumped tea in the Boston Harbor more than two centuries ago. The way China has uh, tried to discredit the Hong Kong protesters is similar to the way King George III of England criticized the colonial protesters in America in December of December rather of 1773. Um, We'll see the outcome uh, in the days ahead as this has died down and flared up again more than one time. Well, Asian shares were mostly higher on Wednesday after U.S. stocks, especially shares of tech companies and bond yields, rallied uh, Tuesday following the Trump administration's decision to delay tariffs on key Chinese imports. Early in Tuesday's session, equities turned positive on a report that China's Commerce Secretary agreed to conduct a phone call in two weeks with U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, according to Reuters. Wall Street then learned that the White House was delaying until December 15th additional tariffs on certain Chinese exports. The announcement was greeted with relief on Wall Street and by retailers who have grown fearful that the new tariffs would wreak holiday Uh, havoc on sales. Among the uh, products that will benefit from the three-and-a-half-month reprieve are such popular consumer goods as cell phones, laptops, video game consoles, some toys, computer monitors, shoes, and clothing. And here in Portland, we're gearing up for a set of dueling rallies this weekend that's expected to bring an informal coalition of uh, groups, some of which have been uh, have uh, decried a white nationalist and white supremacist and the so-called anti-fascists who have violently opposed, um, well, not just right wingers, but those who stand in their way. Portland's so-called Antifa members have issued an online call to followers to turn out to defend Portland. Uh, Portland leaders are planning a major law enforcement presence on the heels of similar rallies in June and last summer that turned violent and the recent hate-driven shooting in El Paso, Texas. None of the city's nearly 1,000 police officers will have the day off and Portland will get help 
from the Oregon State Police and FBI. CNN primetime host Don Lemon is accused of a bizarre sexually charged assault of a uh, bartender in New York Hamptons in a civil suit filed earlier this week. In the lawsuit, Dustin Heiss of Florida said he was living in the Hamptons and working at the uh, pub uh, during a summer of 2018 in July after closing. He claims uh, he left with the owner and co-workers to um, go to another facility where they saw Lemon. Recognizing the new newsman, he offered to buy him a drink called uh, the Lemon Drop, according to the suit, and it went on from there. Lemon declined the offer, Heist claimed, but later approached him inside the establishment. I won't go into detail, uh, but that is an ongoing uh, investigation. On this day in history, the 14th of August, 1935, the Social Security Act becomes law. And on this day in history, 1945, Japan surrenders to U.S. to the U.S., ending World War II. And on this day in history, 1947, Pakistan becomes independent of British rule. On this day in 1997, Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh is sentenced to death. And in 2003, this day, a huge blackout hits the northeastern United States and parts of Canada. 50 million people lose power. And finally, in 2015, on this day, the U.S. Embassy in Cuba reopens after being closed for 54 years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Twenty-one minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing to follow the um, unfolding story in Philadelphia, where six police officers have been shot. All are expected to survive uh, their wounds and are uh, conscious and coherent. Um, so we'll fill you in as soon as uh, additional information is made available. As promised, we want to provide an opportunity for you to win an unplanned Blu-ray DVD. It's the movie that Amazon said is at the top of their list this week. It's coming out in Blu-ray, and you could win your copy. We're going to give away the first copy today to caller number 3-800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. If you're not aware, it's the story of Abby Johnson. She was the youngest Planned Parenthood Center director in the nation until she actually observed an abortion And that changed everything for her, telling uh, her story quite well. Again, unplanned the movie. Caller number 3-800-845-2162. We'll give away a second uh, copy of Unplanned in the second hour of today's program. Well, as we have one, I've uh, focused on what's happening in Philadelphia. Police in San Antonio, Texas, arrested a man earlier Tuesday morning in connection with gunshots fired through the windows of an immigration and customs enforcement office in the city. Local law enforcement responded at about 3 a.m. Central Time on Tuesday to shots fired at the ICE field office located north of Interstate Uh, The FBI confirmed in a statement provided uh, to the Washington Examiner. Shortly before or after shots were also fired in a nearby building, both buildings also house businesses completely unrelated to ICE operations. No injuries were reported, but the FBI has opened an investigation into the shootings and is currently processing the crime scene and reviewing surveillance footage. One observer said that if the bullet had gone in an inch or two in one direction or the other, one of the agents would have been struck. Christopher Combs, special agent in charge of the FBI, FBI's San Antonio operation called the shootings cowardly, brazen, and violent acts. An attempt to attack federal employees in a federal cr- is a federal crime with serious consequences. The FBI will relentlessly pursue every lead in this case to find the individuals who are responsible.
And the Trump administration announced it would delay implementing additional tariffs on a host of products from China for three months, which could spell good news for both U.S. retailers and consumers heading into a busy shopping season. Before the president boarded Air Force One to visit a natural gas plant in Pennsylvania on Tuesday, he said the delay would help a lot of different groups of people. Uh, We're doing this for Christmas season, just in case some of the tariffs would have to be Uh, would have an impact on U.S. consumers, which so far uh, they've uh, had virtually none, he told reporters. Uh, They won't uh, be relevant to the Christmas shopping season. Well, the increased tariffs, which were supposed to take effect on September 1st, are now put off until the 15th of December uh, for some items. The U.S. Office of Trade Representative detailed the products that would be affected by the delay, including cell phones, laptops, computers, video games, consoles, toys, uh, computer monitors, kitchen items, sports equipment, footwear and clothing. An international trade attorney and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute noted that um, there are a lot of politically sensitive items included in this list, which now are unlikely to be affected by tariff during the holiday season. Well, one thing we've learned, the good book uh, got good news from the Trump administration, America's Bibles, most of which are printed in China and imported to the United States, are now exempt from the burgeoning trade war between the two nations. With a 10 percent hike in on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods looming, the Office of U.S. Trade Representations posted two long lists of items, one of imports from China that will become subject to tariffs on September 1st and one of imports whose proposed tariffs will now be delayed until December 15th. It also noted that certain products are being removed from the tariff list altogether based on health, safety, national security and other factors. Missing from both lists? Bibles. Bibles and other religious literature are among the items removed from the tariff list and will not face additional tariffs of 10 percent. While stocks and oil prices plummeted today with the Dow Jones Industrial tumbling 800 points, the fourth largest daily point drop on record and the worst this year as increasing global recession fears drove Wall Street investors to the safety of U.S. government debt. The yield or interest rate of the Treasury's two-year note exceeded the yield on the 10-year Treasury, an ominous sign known as an inverted yield curve that a recession is on the way. Feeding fears of a global recession was a report that China... Uh, Chinese industrial production was climbing at its weakest rate in 17 years, and Germany's economy, Europe's strongest, was actually shrinking. Gold, often seen as a haven for investors, uh, investor assets settled um, at uh, 1,515, a 52-week high, and the highest level in more than six years. Oil also tanked on global recession concerns. Germany's economy shrank by 0.1% in the second quarter from the previous three months. The major European markets ended the day drastically lower, with the German DAX and French uh, CAC losing more than 2% each. Well, the news was similar in Asia. Ms. China's factory output, retail spending, and investment weakened in July, suggesting the world's second largest economy faces downward pressure on growth. China's factory output rose 4.8% over the year earlier, a marked decline from June's 6.3%. Retail sales uh, growth slowed to 7.6% from the previous month's 9.8%. Japan's Nikkei uh, added nearly 1%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng inched up less than 0.1%, and the Shanghai Composite edged up 0.4%. Macy's reported a 48% drop in quarterly profits and cut its forecast for full-year adjusted earnings on Wednesday, sending shares tumbling. Rival retailers, Kohl's, Target, and Nordstrom's also fell. Technology shares, including Apple, also took a hit, 
chip makers joined the selling. On the economic front, the Labor Department said on Wednesday import prices increased 0.2 percent last month as a rebound in the cost of petroleum products offset declines in prices for capital goods and motor vehicles. So a bit of the... uh, uh, the lineup. Well, a D.C. federal judge on Wednesday shot down an attempt by House Judiciary Committee Democrats to link their subpoena for former White House counsel Don McGahn to a separate request for secret grand jury information from the Russia investigation after the Justice Department accused them of trying to game the system. Normally, cases are assigned to judges randomly, which the Department of Justice said is meant to keep parties from attempting to game the system by shopping for a judge they like. But in a Tuesday court filing, the department alleged the Democrat-controlled committee was trying to do exactly that by exploiting an exception that allows related cases to be heard by the same judge. In this case, the Department of Justice said the panel improperly sought to connect the McGahn case to the grand jury case simply because they're both part of their investigation of President Trump. At first blush, the House Judiciary Committee's view that the related case rule applies is understandable. Quote from D.C. District Court to Chief Judge Beryl Howell in a, her order rejecting the bid. Nonetheless, closer examination demonstrates that these connections between the two cases are too superficial and attenuated for instant McGann subpoena case to qualify. Howell, who is currently assigned to the grand jury case, agreed with the Department of Justice's argument that the committee's request to unseal secret grand jury information from former special counsel Robert Mueller's probe has to do with the application of the law under the federal rules of criminal procedure. While the McCann case is a civil matter dealing with enforcing a subpoena where immunity has been asserted. This latter filed subpoena enforcement suit involves no issues of fact or law common to the earlier grand jury application, nor does it focus on a common event or transaction such that the matters would be related, the Department of Justice argued in its court filing. Well, the House Judiciary Committee claimed that the cases are related because they both tie into the very... um, into what, rather, they are now calling an impeachment investigation of Trump. Their complaint against McGahn calls him the most important witness other than the president himself to the key events that are the focus of the Judiciary Committee's investigation into Russian interference and the 2016 presidential election. So the judge has slapped down that uh, effort to tie the two together, but decisions will be made on each separately that will determine the course of the uh, committee's attempt to impeach the president. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with Bob Merritt. He is both a pastor and an author. The book we'll be talking about, Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Life. That's coming up. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Thirty-four minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The question is: Are you ready to leave the struggle of your old life behind? But if the old life is gone and the new life is here, as Second Corinthians five seventeen says, then why do we continue to struggle with sin? From saying things we regret to struggling with greed and battling insecurities, it's difficult to leave behind our old sinful life and embrace a new life in Christ. Well, in his latest book, Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life, 
My next guest, uh, Bob Merritt, who's a pastor of multi-site Eagle Brook Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he exposes the inner battle we all fight with sin. He helps readers identify their signature sins, shares how to overcome them, and defines ways in which readers can find peace. He bases uh, much of his writing on his personal struggles with sin, and he shows readers how to leave behind their old life and begin to embrace the new life that God intends for us. Done With That explores the relationship that God desires to have with each of us, and I'm so grateful that we can think through some of the challenges to arrive at that uh, that full, abundant life. Well, Bob Merritt is, as I mentioned, senior pastor of Eagle Brook Church in the Twin Cities area of Minneapolis. He is the author of Get Wise and Seven Simple Choices. He's married to Laura, and um, I should say Lori, and they have two children, five grandchildren, and a hunting dog named Blue. Today we talk about being done with that, escaping the struggle of our old life. Bob Merritt, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, Jane, it's an honor, and it sounds like you've read the book, so way to go. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that you begin um, and, and share, you're very open about your own struggle with sin. I, I suppose it's unavoidable because we all struggle with it, but I think many of us assume that once you've reached the pinnacle of Christendom by becoming a pastor, that's all passe. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm 62 years old. I was born and raised in a pastor's home. So I've been around church and the Bible, Christianity all my life, became a Christian early in life. And I didn't hear my dad talk about this verse. Uh, you know, when you become a Christian, the old life is gone, the new has come. And I would sit there and listen, and not only him, but other speakers and teachers uh, talk about this. When you become a Christian, everything changes. You know, there's this new life is available, the old, old life is gone. And I would just have this tremendous guilt and confusion because the reality in my life was that, hey, I put my faith in, in Christ. I, I, I think I'm a Christian based on faith. Why, you know, I still sin. And I dealt with this guilt and confusion as a teenager all through my 20s, 30s, and now as a 60-year-old uh, pastor, I still struggle with sin. I, the, the truth about my life, Georgine, is that, um, you know, I'm a sinner. Uh, I still commit sins uh, that I shouldn't. Uh, and so the reality is, you know, how can we be done with that, escape the struggle, the old life? It just create a lot of confusion and guilt in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very common. So what did Paul mean when he said the old life has gone? Because, I, you know, we'd like to imagine that there is a split second in which that tendency that we were born into and with has passed and we no longer have to confront uh, our sin nature. Yeah, so I, I had to ask myself, what, what did he mean when the old life is gone? And several things. First of all, being separated from God is gone through Christ. You know, Ephesians 2.12 says we are no longer separated from God if our faith is in Christ. That, that dividing wall has been broken down. So we are a part of God's family no matter what we do, no matter what, who we are. If our faith is in Christ, we're not separated. That's gone. Separation, the penalty for sin is gone. In other words, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the pull, he, he paid the pull, full penalty for my sin and yours. Uh, so there's no longer an eternal penalty that I'm going to face because of my sin. And then thirdly, the bondage of sin uh, is gone. In other words, I, I, I still sin at times, but I don't have to be enslaved to it, the Bible says. I don't have to 
let sin master me. I, I, can, I don't have to be in total bondage over this sin problem that we all have. And I appreciate um, putting that in that, that context. So it explains that if I'm still struggling, it doesn't mean that I'm somehow um, different from every other believer I know, that this is common among us, that we, we face this challenge. I can tell you every, yep, every believer uh, is still a sinner. Paul even admitted in Romans 7, you know, I know what I should do. I can't mm. do it. I end up doing the very thing I hate. Now, he didn't tell us what his signature sin was, but we know he struggled, and he, he kept doing things that he knew was sinful. Now, the, the title of your book is Done With That. Explain what that means and how we know that it's time to point to a particular thing, some aspect or signature sin, as you use the phrase in the book and, and just now. How we know uh, when it's time to say, I'm done with that, and what approach we can take to actually live up to that pronouncement. Yes, yeah, so for, for me... Uh, Pain, <laughs> pain or loss. I mean, when I when I realize that uh, my behavior, my words, whatever, is causing pain, not only for others but for me, or if I'm losing things like my friends or my job or um, my reputation, when I see that pain and loss uh, is happening in my life, that those are telltale signs. But I've got a sin issue that I might not be aware of. Uh, and for me, you know, 10 years into my being a pastor here at this church, our church was doing very well. We'd grown from 300 to 10,000. But I was, I had, my signature sin is verbal misconduct, and I wasn't aware of it. I, I didn't realize how sharp my words were, how harsh my language was. Uh, I had some anger issues because uh, I was just under a lot of stress and for other reasons as well. Um, but when the church board sat me down and said, you either uh, go to counseling for a full year and get control of your verbal misconduct or you're done. Well, that was painful. Yeah. And uh, I sat in front of a counselor for a full year and he interviewed all my friends, all my family members, uh, anybody who knew me and basically asked one question, what's good about Bob? What's bad about Bob? And he read back to me 225 pages of feedback that people had given him. And that was painful. And I never want to go through something like that again. But pain was a signal yeah. <laughs> to me, pain and loss, that I've got an issue that I've got, to, I've got to address. Wow. Now, you had the benefit of a board who said, you must do this. This is a deficit. Most of us don't have that luxury, if I can put it that way. How do we... <laughs> How do we come to recognize our own um, signature sin? Because we are very good. I am very good at identifying the sins of others. But somehow when oh. I consider my own, it's, there's kind of a blur. There's, there's very little there. It's, it's harder to, to recognize. Right. Yeah, so I think most of us are, you know, lack some self-awareness. I think there's some fear in really uh, looking at ourselves. You know, Christ talks about the log, the log that we have in our own eyes, uh, you know, making us unable to see mm -hmm. see accurately. So we all have blind spots. I have blind spots. We all do. A blind spot is something you can't see yourself. And so, you know, one of the ways to discover where my weaknesses or, or sin issues might be is to ask a trusted friend, hey, where, you know, where, where do I keep goofing up? Where, where am I hurtful in my behavior language? 
what do you see about me? Or a spouse. I mean, if you're married and you, you know, have a good relationship with your spouse, ask them. They'll tell you. Or if you have kids. I mean, I once asked my 10-year-old <laughs> son, hey, David, you know, where, where do I sin? And he said, sin, Dad? And he listed off about five glaring <laughs> problems that I had. <laughs> okay, that's enough. So, I mean, you know, just being open and, and honest about that and, and saying to some or a counselor and just say, look, could you help me identify these areas that, that are causing pain and loss in my life? So it's, it, takes, it takes humility to do that. Yeah, it, uh, it, it, certainly, um, it certainly does take real humility to, to do that. I feel convicted right now that I need to talk to my husband as soon as I get home <laughs> to give that some thought on the drive from here to there. Well, and and you know, I, I would caution your listeners, though, uh, Georgine, because you might be in a, a, a toxic marriage. And, you, you know, if mm. that person uh, uses language or is harsh or can't yeah. be trusted with a like that. Be careful who you ask. Very wise counsel. Unfortunately, I'm in a really good marriage, so <laughs> I probably will have to talk to my husband. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you the difference between a sin and a bad habit. There are things that we do that, oh, I shouldn't do it that way. Uh, is, is there a marked difference, and how do we tell the difference? Well, habits can be good or bad. Uh, so, you know, a good habit would be exercise, eating right, those kinds of things. Uh, working out, can be a good habit, but if that working out becomes an obsession and starts to get in the way of your work and your relationships, uh, watching television can be a maybe a neutral habit, and neither good nor bad, but if I stay up till 2 a.m. watching programs I shouldn't be watching, that can spin into a, a sin issue and can start to erode my soul. So habits are, you know, can be benign, neither good or bad, um, but if it turns into an obsession, or let's say, you know, viewing pornography, that, that's, that's a habit for people. That's sin. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. flat-out sin that's, that's, uh, that's going to destroy your own soul uh, and destroy the relationships one has with, with other people. So habits are, are things that can turn into obsessions when it becomes an obsession or something that really takes control in your life. That's problematic. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with uh, Bob Merritt. He is a senior pastor of Eagle Brook Church in Twin Cities in the Minnesota area and the author of Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with uh, Pastor Bob Merritt, author of Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. Well, once you've identified your signature sin and you've made the uh, determination that we're going to address this in a way that's consistent with my profession of faith, where does one begin? How do you jettison the old in order that we might um, experience the new? Yeah, um... I think awareness is really important, Georgie, and I think, you know, for me to become aware, I'll speak about my own problem, this verbal problem I've had really most of my life of saying things I shouldn't, uh, being harsh with my language. Um, 
really being aware of it is step number one. If you're not aware of it, you really can't address it. You can't even pray about it. You can't ask people to hold you accountable. So uh, self-awareness is extremely important. And again, I think a lot of people uh, walk through life not aware of of the issues that they might have, or they downplay them, or they just say, well, that's, you know, that's just me, or that's how I roll. But these things actually can get in the way of your relationships. They can, they can actually prevent you from being promoted in a job, uh, eventually just causing uh, relational wreckage wherever you go uh, with kids and spouses and friends. So uh, recognition, being aware of it is, is really, really mm-hmm. important. I can't emphasize, emphasize that enough. And that takes a lot of humility and just flat out honesty. Where, where do I slip? You know, where, where, where are my weaknesses? And then once once you once you identify it and you're honest about that, um, one of the things that was really important for me is where does this issue happen most? Where where does this temptation, this problem surface the most? And again, in my own situation, uh, whenever I was going into a meeting at work, uh, yeah, at work, at church, whatever, could have been a board meeting or just a staff meeting, that was. That was a fertile ground for me to spout off and say stupid things. And I just had to recognize this is an, this is an area, this is where this, this problem surfaces a lot. And so being aware of that helped me then to say, okay, before I go into this meeting, uh, Bob, check your spirit, check your, your tone, watch your words, you know, button your lips. Uh, slow down, you know, listen first, speak second. So, you know, a lot of us are in workplaces. You might have a colleague that you're attracted to, for example, and you're married. Uh, You know, one of the things you have to recognize is if you go by that colleague's desk and there's some eye contact and just some flirtatious behavior going on, uh, that's going to turn into something. And that's a temptation that you have to avoid. So, you know, I advise walk down a different corridor, corridor or hallway in your, your workplace. You, you need to avoid that because you're recognizing this is an area right around his or her desk that this temptation flares up the most. So that's the second thing, recognizing where does this happen. And then the, the third thing I would just really offer quickly here is we can't fight this on our own. Yeah. And that's where God's spirit comes in. You know, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the Bible says, that same spirit, that same power lives inside of every believer. Uh, so on a daily basis these days, later in life, I've been praying this prayer, God, lead me by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Every single morning I pray that prayer several times a day. God, lead me, fill me, control me by your spirit who has the power to overcome this sin in my life. So those are three things I'd offer up. I I love the third part of the book. It's titled, The New Life is Less and More. Paint a picture for us of what this this new life that we are called to walk in, what it looks like, so that we have some idea of, first of all, the freedom that's in that, um, but but how we know that we're kind of there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the reason I, I said, you know, the old life or the new life is less of one thing and more of another is because it's it's not about becoming perfect. It's about making progress. Yeah. And so again, I'll go back to my own problem with verbal misconduct. I, I still say things I shouldn't at times, but there's been definite progress in my life. And 
the people around me can vouch for that. My wife, my kids, my colleagues. I still I still fumble the ball once in a while, but I'm making progress. So it's it's less about being perfect. It's more about progress. And so the four chapters I dealt with, I think these are the four struggle areas in most people's lives. Mm-hmm. It's really it's about less rebellion, more obedience. And we're we're rebellious by nature. So as I obey more, uh, you know, my life goes better. Less possessions. It's less about owning things. It's more about how I'm treating people. It's less selfishness, more sacrifice, less obsession, more devotion to God. So those are the four areas that I think the battleground is fought. Yeah, and these are things that um, call upon us to live in a countercultural way, because these are considered modern-day virtues, uh, to be rebellious, (laughs) to have many possessions, to be self-focused, and to be obsessed. These are all things that are admirable in our culture. Absolutely, and that's that's why that's why I, I identify them as as true battlegrounds. I battle these. I, I struggle with rebellion. I struggle with putting way too much emphasis on the things I possess and own, uh, even getting in the way of relationships. I'm selfish by nature. You know, I'm going to be fighting selfishness until I'm dead. But the Bible says, you know, live your lives as a living sacrifice, uh, wholly acceptable to God. And I. And I I explore in the book where being sacrificial is actually uh, something that brings life to your own soul, mm-hmm. and also life into your relationships. You know, if you're married, for example, uh, you know, Paul says, uh, love your wives uh, and essentially give yourself up. And that's sacrificial. I can tell you that right now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. We're all, we're, all, we're all married men. But that's where the love is. That's where joy is. That's where intimacy resides. It's in the sacrifice, giving up the remote, giving up my my time, giving up some of the things that I enjoy for the sake of my relationship. It's not that we don't have fun. It's not that I can't go out and play golf and go hunting. But there's got to be sacrifice along with, you know, trying to fight off all this selfish ambition. So what's ultimately the goal? We, we've already talked about the fact that perfection is not the goal. It's not achievable. But what ultimately is the goal when we, we walk away from the old life and we enjoy the new that is promised to us in Scripture? Yeah. So, you know, the subtitle of the book, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. Um, I, I think a lot of people are struggling in life. I think a lot of people feel a tremendous amount of anxiety. I think we live in an anxious culture. People are afraid. They're anxious. I think people live with guilt, tremendous amount of guilt. They feel, they feel defeated as well. And so I, I think there's a way to escape much of that. And that's, that's, the, that's the ultimate goal. Can I, can I escape the struggle? Can I be done with this awful struggle that I have with guilt or anxiety or depression and really, it's found in uh, this deep relationship that we can all have with Christ, who needs to be at the center of our lives. Um, and this is something that, you know, you don't drift into. You don't just assume it's going to happen. There are daily disciplines that I, that I have to adhere to in order to make sure I'm walking with the Lord every single day. Yeah, absolutely. Can you just mention a few of those daily disciplines? Because again, that's countercultural living as well. Well, it is, you know, but uh, 
the Bible talks about discipleship or being a disciple. The very word comes from discipline. So, so there's disciplines, and nobody likes to be disciplined. But the discipline of memorizing Scripture, for example, I have found is even more important than reading Scripture. They're both very important, but but I need to have, you know, I need to hide God's word in my heart, the Bible says. And that you do that by memorizing certain Bible verses. You know, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, let your request be made, made known to God. And the peace of God, you know, that passes understanding will fill your heart. So have no anxiety, the Bible says. I need to remind myself, Bob, you don't have to be anxious. You can bring this anxiety to the Lord every single day. Uh, the verse that I have staring at me every morning right at my desk is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not my strength, mm-hmm. but I can get through this day. I can get through this challenge. I can get through this uh, anxious moment if I turn to, turn to the Lord and ask him to remove this and give me the strength I need. So, you know, having those memory verses, and, and many others, right at the tip of my tongue, right in, right in the top of my memory every single day, because life is hard, and we all get, you know, beat up in life, and we all have challenges, and we all face fear, and uh, I, I just need to, every single day, through memory verses, remind myself who God is, who I am, what he's promised me, uh, and I'll tell you what, it frees up your soul, it, it sets your day on the right path. So that's that's one discipline. Yeah. Memory. I wish we had more time to go into others. They're just going to have to buy the book. <laughs> it's titled <laughs> Done With That, Escape the, Str- the Struggle of Your Old Life. and really is very practical. I would encourage folks uh, to read it. Thanks for joining us. I so appreciate your time. Thanks, Janine. God bless you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Janine, Georgine, Geraldine. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. In this hour, we're going to give away our second planned the movie Blu-ray DVD. So listen for your opportunity for that. Well, if you owe the IRS more than $52,000, and I hope you don't, these are overdue taxes, you may not be able to get a new passport or renew your existing passport, or it might simply be revoked, whether you're at home or abroad. The IRS has notified more than 400,000 taxpayers that their passports are at risk since the program started. Uh, They finally um, seem to be ready to make good on threats to strip U.S. passports from Americans who owe more than $52,000 in overdue taxes. Now, that's uh, not a problem that Clark or I have. But the tax collector and the State Department are escalating enforcement of the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. Always amazes me the names they came up uh, come up with. Fast, it's called. The law enables them to deny passport applications or revoke existing passports due to outstanding debts. Now, the government is entitled to collect on a debt, but uh, this is a new way of doing that. The enforcement effort began in February of last year for debts of fifty one thousand dollars or higher, and it has uh, covered applications thus far for new or renewed passports. Um, the new threshold, which is 52000 for 2019, reflects an annual adjustment for inflation. So every year that figure is going to go 
uh, up. Now the IRS is going to actively start referring unresolved cases to the State Department for potential revocation, according to a spokesperson there. Uh, State denies passport applications or revokes existing um, uh, passports based on the information it receives from the IRS. So there will be no uh, escaping. In fact, if you have a debt and you think, well, I'll just leave the country, that may not be possible. They issued a press release earlier this week reminding delinquent taxpayers of the provision. By the way, most Americans don't have a passport, so I suppose it's not going to be all that effective for most Americans if they fall in that category. But um, just letting you know in case you know somebody who fits in that category, because I know it doesn't apply to you. You don't owe $52,000 or more in back taxes here in the KPDQ listening audience, I'm pretty sure. Well, meat... Meat could be a target for higher taxes, given criticism of the industry's role in climate change, deforestation, and animal cruelty. That's according to a report by Fitch Solutions Macro Research. Well, the idea is still in its infancy. It faces a lot of opposition from farming groups, but it's emerging as a trend in Western Europe. And as Western Europe goes, so goes America? Question mark. Well, if taxes gain traction, it could encourage more people to switch to poultry, or a plant-based protein and have uh, helped drive the popularity of meat um, substitutes. So we'll see what happens. I don't mind a um, meat substitute that, that's in a hamburger form. But, you know, every once in a while, maybe two or three times a year, I like to have, you know, a piece of meat that's all intact like a steak. Yeah, really, I only have uh, steak or, or beef maybe two or three times a year, with the exception of a hamburger. Now that, I'm saying, I, I could do a meat substitute there. Well, the global rise of sugar taxes makes it easier to envisage a similar wave of regulatory measures. Why are you looking at me that way? Just because I don't eat that much um, steak or meat. Uh, anyway, they're targeting the meat industry now, and it's highly unlikely that a tax would be implemented anytime soon here in the U.S. or in Brazil where this group apparently is doing its work. But in Germany, some politicians have proposed raising the sales tax on meat products to fund better livestock living conditions. A poll for the Funk Media Group showed a majority of Germans, or 56.4%, backed that measure, with more than a third calling it very positive. And some 82% of voters there uh, for the environmentalist Greens in, uh, in favor. Uh, Similar proposals have been introduced in Denmark and Sweden since 2016, according to Fitch. Now, we're not Denmark, we're not Sweden, and we're not Germany. So I think it will take a while for something like this to uh, succeed with uh, broad support, I should say, here in the U.S. But it's something that they're um, at least thinking about. Well, results of a new poll show that Senator Elizabeth Warren surging in uh, in a statistical tie with former Vice President Joe Biden The poll conducted by YouGov for The Economist shows Biden earning 21 percent support compared to Warren's 20 percent, well within the margin of error. Senator Bernie Sanders is in third place with 16 percent. Senator Kamala Harris in fourth with 8 percent. Beto O'Rourke and Mayor Pete Buttigieg sharing the fifth spot with 5 percent support, respectively. Well, national polls give a broad indication of the shared sentiment across the country. But as cable news viewers will likely hear repeatedly in the day next day or so, they're less important at this stage than specific swing state polls. Nonetheless, this is a very positive development for the Warren campaign and uh, could cause some serious concern for the former vice president, Joe Biden. The Tennessee Senate Judiciary Committee heard testimonies this week for an amendment to a bill that would affirm that life begins at conception and prohibit abortion after an unborn child's heartbeat is detected or with increased levels of human, um, I think it's chorionic 
gonadotropin or something like that. It's a hormone, an HCC hormone. Uh, this is according to Liberty Council Senior Litigation Counsel Richard Mast presented testimony regarding the um, precedential frailties of Roe versus Wade during the Senate summer study session. Well, Amendment Senate Bill 20, 1236 would revise the heartbeat bill uh, previously passed in the House back in March in that state, uh, but stalled in the Senate. Rather than limiting access to abortion after an unborn baby's cardiac activity is detected, the amendment redefines fetal viability based on objective medical facts. The amended bill would uh, be scheduled for a vote in January of next year when the legislature reconvenes. So something to uh, keep an eye on. Unplanned, the movie. Uh, it's a movie about an abortion clinic director who left her uh, job at Planned Parenthood. It's the number one DVD and Amazon sales after surpassing expectations in the movie theaters. And by the way, we'll still give away uh, a copy of Unplanned later this hour. Without being trite, says Carrie Solomon, who directed the movie, um, I think people have spoken. Unplanned tells the true story about uh, Abby Johnson, a Planned Parenthood clinic director who quit her job with the nation's largest abortion provider in 2009 after having a conversion experience regarding the procedure. The movie that stars Ashley Bratcher as Johnson grossed about $19 million in theaters over 19 weeks, according to Box Office Mojo. Solomon said the news that Unplanned became Amazon's top-selling DVD for its official release on Tuesday is especially gratifying given suppression of the movie by mainstream media and social media in an attempt to damage it during its initial run in theaters succeeded there. Obstacles to the movie's success included its R rating from the Motion Picture Association of America and censorship on social media. It's almost laughable that the Motion Picture Association would give it an R rating given some of the stuff that they try desperately to keep at PG-13. But Solomon said that uh, he read that the makers of the average movie are happy with a sale of twenty to 30,000 DVDs, but that they um, uh, pre-sold about 235,000 without even telling anybody it was out there. Uh, what does that say, Solomon asks? It says that we have a nation that is hungry for stories about life, but not only that, uh, not only that, but for true uh, stories that reveal the truth. Well, he credited the film's success to God's grace, saying, when we began, we were very concerned, very worried, very scared, and we had the Holy Spirit moment. The Spirit dropped on us and basically said, do not be afraid. This is for my glory, and I know that thousands of people Maybe you won't believe that, but that is exactly what happened. Again, the pro-life movie Unplanned hits number one among DVDs in Amazon. Again, the average is about 30,000 sales, and that's pretty. That's a pretty good showing by um, standards of those who produce movies, but they have pre-sold 235,000 copies of Unplanned. So congratulations, and we'll be giving away a copy of Unplanned. Um, um, another two segments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Nineteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Liberty Coin and Currency. 
Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said he believes arrests will be made in the case of conservative journalist Andy Ngo, who was assaulted by Antifa protesters during a July rally outside the Oregon Justice Center. He appeared on America's Newsroom on Wednesday ahead of another planned Antifa rally this weekend. Uh, the uh, Oregon mayor, he uh, pushed back on claims that he played politics with the Ngo case and didn't do enough to hold those responsible accountable. Uh, there's been no arrest um, uh, when it comes to Andy No, says the co-host Sandra Smith, what message does that send? Well, the mayor said, with all due respect, I disagree. Well, there have been no arrests, so to what does he disagree? He went on to say, we don't tolerate any act of violence, not that act of violence or any other. And the police are investigating and they are following up on leads, end quote. Well, it does still send a message. No arrests have been made, and they were present at the time the assault took place. Well, co-host Bill Hemmer, he quoted Neil's tweet about the incident, which detailed how he was savagely beaten by the crowd, doused with an unknown substance before being sent to the hospital with a brain hemorrhage. I was beaten on the head, and it goes on from there. Well, Wheeler claimed the authorities have requested video footage of the incident and said he remains confident the police will find the perpetrators and bring them to justice. They have photographs of some of the individuals. Of course, their faces are masked that they believe were the perpetrators. I know that the intelligence unit continues to follow up on those leads, and I'm confident uh, there will be arrests in that particular case. Well, Wheeler claimed the politics had nothing to do with the case and promised to uphold the rule of law going forward. One can only hope. This isn't about anybody's politics, he says. If they're breaking the law, we're going to enforce it. We're going to hold people accountable. Well, this is news to some of us who live here, but I I'm encouraged to hear the mayor actually mouth the words. Well, another pop culture Christian has lost his faith and made a rather um, um, conspicuous announcement with that regard. And I, it breaks my heart for a variety of reasons, not because this is someone who is prominent and not because this is someone who is faith, uh, who is uh, well known, but because this is someone who is teetering in his faith Uh, And there are consequences to that to the individual. But I appreciated what several writers had to say about it uh, and others who uh, are prominent who have made uh, recent pronouncements. David French writing for National Review. Also, um, Skillet's John Cooper uh, had something to say. And I wanted to share that with you because it might help us all process what's happening. We, of course, should not be surprised. This is nothing new. We have elevated individuals to a position where... We are perhaps more shocked than we should be because position somehow uh, translates for us um, more than it should. But this is what David French had to say about another pop culture Christian losing his faith. He is harsh in some places, but bear with me because I think what he has to say um, is meaningful. He says it's happening again, and he's referring to songwriter uh, Marty Sampson, who explains in a statement that uh, doesn't, according to David French, doesn't quite ring true that he's teetering in his faith. It's happening again for the second time in three weeks, a prominent, at least in evangelical circles, Christians have renounced, a Christian has renounced his faith. In July, it was Josh Harris, a pastor and author of the mega best-selling purity culture book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. This month, it's Hillsong United songwriter and worship leader Marty Sampson. For those who don't know, Hillsong United is one of the most popular and influential worship bands of the modern era. It was born at Hillsong Church in Australia, and its albums routinely top the Christian 
charts. In fact, Billboard's chart history gives it no fewer than eight number one Christian albums. It's a powerhouse in what my former pastor derisively referred to as the Jesus is my boyfriend style of worship music. Their songs featured heartfelt, simple lyrics pledging undying Christian love and devotion. They also happened to inspire millions of Christians across the globe. The relative lack of theological depth to much of Hillsong's music has brought a predictable response to Samson's announcement, shallow songs, shallow theology. But I'm not sure that's right. Of course, only Samson knows his own heart, but I I want to focus on something else. Parts of his Instagram announcement of his change of heart just don't ring true. I won't paste the entire statement, but this part stood out to me. And he quotes, this is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. Now, French goes on. What is he talking about? No one talks about it. Preachers falling, miracles, alleged biblical contradictions, or the challenge of hell. I take a back seat to no one in decrying youth ministries that uh, concentrate more on ultimate Frisbee than on um, uh, catechism or on pastors who focus on self-help to the exclusion of sound doctrine. But you simply cannot grow up in an evangelical church without discussing many of these topics incessantly. Yes, you can pass in and out of church, attend casually without going to Sunday school, and sometimes hear only therapeutic messages from the pulpit. But if you live in the church, as he did, you have real trouble believing his words. You also have seen the same things many times. Adults fall away in the face of the pressures of the world, rationalizing their departure with words that ring true to everyone except Christians who know what the church is really like. As our culture changes, secularizes, and grows less tolerant of Christian orthodoxy, I'm noticing a pattern in many of the people who fall away. Again, only Samson knows his heart. They're retreating from faith not because they're ignorant of its key tenets and lack the necessary intellectual, theological depth, but rather because the adversity of adherence is increasingly countercultural doctrine. It grows too great. Put another way, the failure of the church isn't so much the catechism, but the fortification of building the pure moral courage and resolve to live your faith in the face of cultural headwinds. In my travels around the country, one thing has become crystal clear to me. Christians are not prepared for the social consequences of the profound cultural shifts, especially in more secular parts of the nation. They're afraid to say what they believe, not because they face the kind of persecution that Christians face overseas, but because they're simply not prepared for any meaningful adverse consequence in their careers or with their peers. C.S. Lewis famously said that courage is the form of every virtue at its, pre- at its testing point. In practical application, this means that no person truly knows if he possesses any virtue until it's tested. Do you think you're loving? You'll know you truly love another person only when loving that person is hard. Do you think you're truthful? You'll know only when telling the truth hurts. Soldiers are familiar with this phenomenon. Most men who travel to the battlefield believe themselves to be brave, but they know that they're brave only if they do their duty when their life is on the line. Earlier this summer, I spoke, and again, David French quoting, I spoke at an event in Georgia and discussed what I call the courage cure to political correctness. Are you afraid? Speak anyway with humility, grace, and conviction. The law protects, but the culture resists you. 
After I spoke, a man came up to me and said, that's fine for you to say, but you don't know what corporate America is like. I told him that I did know and that I was, I've experienced its bite. He said, no. He said, um, it's like East Germany now. I asked him if he had tested that proposition, if he'd shared his beliefs in any meaningful way. He said, no. He preemptively silenced himself. That's one version of failing in the face of adversity. Another version is represented by the person who simply wilts, who adopts the critiques of the secular world and lobs grenades back at the church as he leaves. Are you faithful? I'd submit that you don't know until that faith is truly tested, either in dramatic moments of crisis or in the slow, steady buildup of worldly pressures and secular scorn. As the worldly pressure and secular scorn continue to mount, expect to see more announcements like Josh Harris's and Marty Sampson's. Expect to see more people and neighbors retreat and conform. The church has its faults, yes, but the blame will lie less with the church that failed to instruct than with a person who didn't ultimately have the courage to believe. David French, by the way, is a senior writer for National Review. He's a senior fellow at National Review Institute and the veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom with some uh, very challenging and sometimes difficult words to hear about what's happening. We're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes, but I also want to share what John Cooper, who's the lead singer for the rock band Skillet, had to say in response to the litany of recent apostasies among young Christian leaders. In a Facebook post that was titled, What in God's Name is Happening in Christianity?, that was put up on Tuesday the 13th, he directly addressed the reasons given by Hillsong songwriter Marty Sampson for renouncing his Christian faith, or now he's retreated somewhat and saying he's just struggling before highlighting the need for Christians to stay grounded in a truth-driven faith over an emotion-driven one. Um, the text of that to post in its entirety, I want to share with you when we come back from the break in just a few minutes. Again, a piece from John Cooper from Skillet, uh, amazingly profound in his response and primarily concern for uh, for the church as well. Uh, in order to have enough time to do that and one other thing, I'm going to go ahead and give away the uh, final unplanned Blu-ray video. In fact, I think I've been calling it planned this whole time. It's unplanned. Uh, anyway, we want to give away the uh, second um, unplanned video. We'll give that away to caller number five and the number to call 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Caller number five. We want to give away the number one Amazon uh, selling DVD unplanned. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I've been quoting from a couple of uh, very wise uh, people responding to the recent um, announced fall of two prominent of relatively young Christians. This next one is written by Skillet's John Cooper. He's the lead singer for the rock band um, Skillet, and he writes this. Okay, I'm saying it because it's too important not to. What's happening in Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influencers who were once faces of the faith are falling, and at the same time, they are being very vocal and bold about it. Shockingly, they still want to influence others. For what purpose? Question mark. As they announce that they are leaving the faith. I'll state my conclusion, then I'll state some rebuttals to statements I've read by some of them. Firstly, I never judge people outside my faith. Even if they hate religion or Christianity, that is not my place, and 
I have many friends who disagree with my religion, and that is 100% fine with me. However, when it comes to people within my faith, there must be a measure of loyalty and friendship and accountability to each other and the Word of God. My conclusion for the church, all of us Christians, we must stop making worship leaders and thought leaders or influencers or cool people or relevant people the most influential people in Christendom. And yes, that includes people like me. It's been, uh, I've been saying for 20 years and seem probably quite judgmental to some of my peers that we are in a dangerous place when the church is looking to 20 year old worship uh, singers as our source of truth. We now have a church culture that learns who God is from singing modern praise songs rather than from teaching uh, teachings of the word. I'm not being rude to my worship leader friends, many of whom would agree with me in saying that singers and musicians are good at communicating emotion and feeling. We create a moment and a vehicle for God to speak. However, singers are not always the best people to write solid Bible truth and doctrine. Sometimes we are too young, too ignorant of Scripture, too unaware and too unconcerned about the purity of Scripture and the holiness of of the God we are singing to. Have you ever considered the disrespect of singing songs to God that are untrue of His character? I have a few specific thoughts and rebuttals to statements made by recently disavowed church influencers. First of all, I am stunned that the seemingly most important things for these leaders who have lost their faith is to make such a bold new stance, basically saying, I've been living and preaching boldly something for 20 years and led generations of people with my teachings, and now I no longer believe it. Therefore, I'm going to boldly and loudly tell people it was all wrong while I boldly and loudly lead people into my new truth. I'm perplexed why they aren't embarrassed, humbled, ashamed, fearful, confused. Why be so eager to continue leading people when you clearly don't know where you are headed? My second thought is, why do people act like uh, being real covers a multitude of sins, as if someone is courageous simply for sharing virtually every thought or dark place? That's not courageous. It's cavalier. Have they considered the ramifications as if they um, are harbingers of truth saying, I used to think one way and practice it and preach it, but now I've learned all the new truth and will start practicing and preaching it. So influencers become the voice of truth in whatever stage of life and whatever evolution takes place in their thinking. Thirdly, there is a common thread running through these leaders, influencers, that basically says that no one else is talking about the real stuff. This is just flatly false. I just read today in a renowned worship leader statement, how could a God of love send people to hell? No one talks about it as if he is the first person to ask this brother. You are not that unique. The church has wrestled with this for 1500 years. Literally, everybody talks about it. Children talk about it in Sunday school. There's little there's like billions of books written on the topic just because you don't get the answer you want doesn't mean that we are unwilling to wrestle with it. We wrestle with Scripture until we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And lastly, the most shocking, as these influencers disavow their faith, they always end their statements with their new insight, new truth that is basically a regurgitation of Jesus' words. It's truly bizarre and ironic. They'll say, I'm disavowing my faith, but remember, love people, be generous, forgive others. Um, why? That is actually not human nature. No child is ever born and says, I just want to love others before loving myself. I want to turn the other cheek. I want to give my money away to others in need. Those are Bible principles taught by a prophet, priest, king of kings, who wants us to live by a higher standard, which is not an earthly standard, but rather the kingdom of God standard. Therefore, if Jesus 
Jesus is not the truth, and if the word of God is not absolute, then by preaching Jesus' teaching, you are endorsing the words of a madman, a lunatic who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also said that he was alive before Abraham, and to see him was to see God because he was one with God. So why then would a disavowed Christian leader promote that generosity is good? How would you know? What is good without Jesus' teaching? And will your ideas of what is good be different from a year from now based on your experience, cultural trends, popular opinion, etc.? And furthermore, will you continue year by year to lead others into your idea of goodness, even though it is not absolute? I'm amazed that so many Christians want to want the benefits of the kingdom of God, but with the caveat that they themselves will be the king. It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word and to value the teaching of the word. We need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion. And what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. And now those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. Is it any wonder that some of our disavowed Christian leaders are letting go of the absolute truth of the Bible and subsequently their lives are falling apart? Further and further, they are sinking in the sea, all the while shouting, Now I have found truth, follow me. Brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world, pastors, teachers, worship leaders, influencers, I implore you, please, please, in your search for relevancy for the gospel, let us not find creative ways to shape God's word into the image of our culture by shifting uh, inconvenient truths, but rather let us hold on even tighter to the anchor of the living word of God. For he changes not. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the uh, of our God stands forever. Isaiah 48. I'm glad to see one of these influencers come out in defense of the uh, authority of Scripture and the importance of a robust faith that can outlast even the harshest of challenges. And we're talking about um, the uh, lead singer of a popular rock band uh, for over two decades. Finally, I wanted to share with you a piece um, from someone who decided, I'm going to stay. The spiritual seekers to doubters and abandoners will hold a place for you. I stand with Jesus because I can find no other ground strong enough to hold the weight of my faith, my doubt, or my hope. The writer says, there are a lot of spiritual seekers and spiritual orphans around, and there are more today and more every day, including those who seem to be firm in their faith. Many longtime believers, even church leaders, are making statements questioning their faith. Others are taking a break from church attendance and religious devotion out of confusion, anger, and apathy. Still others, after having been damaged in unspeakable ways, have outright denounced their faith, if not their faith in Jesus, at least in the church's ability to properly represent him. Some have left the idea of God behind entirely in an embrace of secularism, agnosticism, and atheism. Sometimes in active ways, there is no God. Some passive don't know, don't care. When it all adds up, there's more high-profile departure from and uncertainty about faith than I've ever seen before. So today, I am announcing um, of my own, uh, for my own sake, I am not going anywhere. I'm not saying this with any sense of pride, superiority, or anger, at least I hope not. Instead, I'm speaking to all the spiritual seekers, abandoners, and denouncers to let them know Four hopeful realities. Hopeful reality number one, sympathize. 
It may seem like there are only two responses to people who have abandoned or questioned their faith, rejection or acceptance, but I can do either one. I can't do either one because even though I'm not taking that path myself, I sympathize. Stepping away from a faith that you don't sincerely hold is the right move to make. Truly, the Bible is very clear that lukewarm faith is worse than hot or cold one. God despises it when we go through the motions, even though there's no active faith behind those motions. There have been, still are, and will always be far more, uh, far too many people who retain the outward trappings of faith with no real heartfelt connection to it. So recognizing what you really do or don't believe and acting upon that is the right thing to do. Sometimes what we think is a step away from a genuine faith may actually bring us closer to it than when we were feigning certainty. Hopeful reality number two, I'm not moving. I'd be lying if I told you I never doubted. I have very deeply at times. I've always, I'd be lying if I told you that I've never gone through the motions of faith without really feeling it. I have, but I've decided to stay put smack in the middle of the uh, bell curve of the Christian faith, neither fundamentalist nor progressive, passionate, but not angry, committed, but teachable. I believe with all my heart that Jesus was and is God, that he died and rose again, that salvation is through his name, that the Bible is wholly true and that Jesus is coming again. To many of you, those beliefs may seem antiquated, unsophisticated and simplistic. To others, they may seem narrow and unbending. To some, they may trigger trauma from times when you heard others claim those beliefs only to live out something horribly foreign to the God of love they claim to believe in. But my belief has never been in people who claim to follow Jesus only in Christ himself. I stand with Jesus because I can find no other ground strong enough to hold the weight of my faith, my doubt, or my hope. Hopeful reality number three. I'll be here if you need someone. Seekers tend to embrace other seekers, doubters, other doubters. That's understandable. But if in your seeking or doubting you need a soft place to land, you know where I'll be. Right here, ready to listen, sympathizing, pray, hang out, mourn with you. And I'm not hoping uh, that even as you explore, seek, question, and doubt your own faith, knowing that I'm here holding firm, I'll help you orient yourself on your own journey. And hopeful reality number four, I'm not alone. Finally, I'm not the only person who believes and lives these truths as best I can. There are lots of us. Sure, we don't do it perfectly. Everyone does everything imperfectly, I suppose. That's not an excuse. But there are a lot of us who are sincere and honest about what we say we believe. Our imperfections aren't lies. They're part of our own seeking, seeking to stay and live this faith as honestly, sincerely, and helpfully as we can. We'll be here, still believing, still worshiping, still making mistakes, and still loving Jesus because he loves us and you more than any of us can imagine. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in view of our conversation in the last segment, I thought John Stone Street's piece in Christianity Today might shed some light on the future of Christendom in our country. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller argues that Christianity is the only truly global religion. Indeed, within a few generations of, of Christ, the Christian faith had spread across much of the known world, from India to North Africa to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire and into the barbarian 
mainland of Northern Europe. Yet up until 100 years ago or so, uh, for all kinds of historical and sociological reasons, Christianity became a predominantly Western religion. The missionary efforts of the last 100 years began to change that, and now Pew Research predicts that Africa will be the most Christian continent within about 40 years. The story behind this geographical relocation is overwhelming as a story of mission of missions rather. For centuries the West sent evangelists to Africa, to Asia, South America to preach the gospel, plant churches and create Christian communities where none existed. Whereas the heroes of the faith in the ancient church were theologians and bishops and those during the Reformation were well reformers, most of the names we recognize since the Reformation are the missionaries: William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Gladys Aylward, Eric Little. Uh, Jim Elliott, Amy Carmichael. This move of the gospel from the West to the South and the East could be one of the largest scale fulfillments of the Great Commission since Jesus first gave it. Yet, as a fascinating piece uh, in The Economist explains, the direction of the flow of Christian missions has now largely reversed. As it did, the geographic center of the faith also shifted. A century ago, as Pew reports, over 90% of the world's Christians lived in Europe and the Americas, and less than 6% in Africa and Asia. Today, over a third of all Christians hail from those countries. As this Christian population shifts has taken place, something else interesting has also happened. Poor, developing countries that once benefited from Western missionaries coming into their cultures have started sending missionaries of their own back to the rich and increasingly irreligious West. Now, one of the most interesting experiences I had when I traveled with the Bible League many years ago was meeting with um, refugees who are in Thailand on the border with Thailand. They share a border with Myanmar, Burma at the time, and they were refugees. They were exiles from their country. They were subject to uh, military raids. It just was not a healthy situation for a community to thrive. They were living in the jungle. They had constructed for themselves very crude housing. And yet when we were there, we witnessed what was um, referred to as a Bible college, where students were taking very seriously this opportunity to be trained. And we asked them, what's the what's the goal here, aside, of course, from building one's understanding of Scripture and, and building one's faith? They said, we are training to be missionaries. We want to travel to the United States. We want." And I remember thinking to myself, you know, here we are in the jungle. You've been exiled from your country. You have nothing. Thailand does not want you. Um, how are you going to be missionaries um, to the West? And we asked them, how do you, you, do you have passports? Do you have visas? And they looked at us as if we had never read the scriptures. And they said, well, Paul never had a visa. He didn't have a passport. And they just understood that uh, as they were training and equipping themselves for a mission and for ministry, that God would provide open doors and ways to uh, to use the gifts that and the training that they were getting. So um, we're hearing that from Africa and Korea uh, and Myanmar, as I include them in that list, their numbers may be small. I don't know what the status is there now. They've taken seriously the opportunity to evangelize the United States. Well, while the U.S. still leads the world in sending missionaries, something that has uh, been true for a long time, our market share is dropping. The largest growth seen in global mission output is in non-Western countries, and it's happening fast. Between 2010 and 2015, the number of African missionaries jumped 32 percent to over 27,000. Korean missionaries jumped 50 percent to 30,000 in the same period. And the countries receiving the lion's share of these missionaries are Brazil, Russia, and wait for it, the United States. 
As one whose church has been largely shaped by the missionary efforts of African Christians, we thank God for this new trend. At the same time, anyone trying to convert Westerners has their work cut out for them. As the Economist piece observed, saving the rich is difficult, though Jesus said it wasn't impossible. Among the compelling stories of Christian history, we may read about uh, one day will be whether missionaries from the global south coaxed Western camels through the needle's eye. If credit card debt has you down... Uh, If you're distracted by the accumulation of wealth, the busyness of the West, this may come as something of a surprise. Well, those bringing the good news back to our shores and even more so to European shores often remark how jaded and difficult it can be to convert Westerners. Having once had the faith, but having at least partially lost it, we're like the bird infested path or the thorny ground in Jesus parable. Even so. Uh, To whatever scale the effort to reconvert the West succeeds or not, it ought to leave us in awe of God's wisdom. Within just the span of a few centuries, the church went global, and it was precisely at the time the West began to lose its faith. Both the work of the missionaries who planted these seeds abroad and the return of that fruit to our own shores are testaments to providence. We ought to be reminded, though, uh, rather through them, that God is no respecter of persons, nations, and even continents. I only wish those early global missionaries could see all of this unfold. Of course, as those who've now joined the great cloud of witnesses, they have a perspective on the whole story that's better than our own. They obeyed Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations, and I wonder if they had any idea that those nations would one day return the favor. I shared, uh, I believe, earlier this week uh, the fact that um, there is a shift in the idea of missions being uh, not only useful or a command, but whether or not it's wrong to share one's faith in a culture outside of one's own. And so this is encouraging to see that the will of God will always be accomplished, regardless of um, the machinations that we observe here on earth in our time. And I find that encouraging to consider. So I wanted to share that with you. Well, of course, we are anticipating a wonderful evening coming up with Gospel Sing Live. That is uh, this Friday, 7 o'clock p.m. at Riverfront Park in Salem. The Booth Brothers, Wes Hampton, Hampton rather, tribute uh, quartet, uh, all are going to be performing. This is the largest gospel music event of the summer, sponsored by 93.9 KPDQ and True Talk 800. You can still get tickets. Go to kpdq.com. You can call 503 503- Six five two eighty one fifty eight. Again, five zero three six five two eight one five eight. Or you can purchase your tickets at the door. But we're anticipating a wonderful evening. It really kicks off a series of events sponsored by Salem Media affiliated stations, and uh, we're just excited to celebrate fifty years of Southern gospel music here at KPDQ. In fact, the longest running program here at this station, and that's saying something. Fifty years is a very a very long time. So hope to see many of you there and don't be discouraged. You still have an opportunity to purchase tickets either at the door or you can go online or call the number I mentioned 503-652-8158. Also, I want to remind you that we will continue tomorrow to give away uh, two of the Blu-ray DVDs, Unplanned, the movie coming out on Blu-ray and uh, you could win your copy. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, Unplanned was Amazon's number one top-selling uh, Blu-ray DVD, uh, so it's uh, it's been quite spectacular. It's the story, of course, of Abby Johnson. She canceled 
thousands of women as she rose to become one of the youngest Planned Parenthood directors in the nation until one day she actually observed the procedure and that changed everything. Um, We're going to be giving away two more copies and that's uh, uh, tomorrow. So again, listen up for your opportunity to win. All right, I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you will join us here tomorrow when I have a conversation with Leslie Montgomery. The book is The Faith of Mike Pence. Yeah, Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, that's coming up on the program. Hey, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.